morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, January 31st, we are studying John chapter 6, verses 22 to 33. After Jesus withdrew from the crowds, they didn't stop looking for him. When they find him, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them about the true food that they should seek. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Emmanuel and Holy Cross Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you as always, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippek, help us with some context as we prepare to look at this section of John chapter 6 today. Sounds good. So as we look at our text for today, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. We need to remember that we're in the midst of a transition of place that has just occurred. At the start of chapter six, we were on one side, the other side of the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee, and there was a crowd coming to Jesus, a crowd of 5,000. And when Jesus sees them, he's the one who initiates a conversation about bread with Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. And Philip doesn't know. He and the other disciples can't give him bread. That's why Philip said not even 200 denarii worth of bread could buy enough food to give each of them just a little bit. And neither Andrew or the boy with five loaves and two fish can feed them either. So Jesus takes these things, give thanks, and it is he who provides, he who gives bread to 5,000 men and all of this during the time of Passover. So after all had eaten and they all had as much as they wanted, the disciples gathered the leftovers, 12 baskets full, one for each disciple. And on seeing this, the crowds exclaim a very important phrase. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Why, why, is that? why the prophet? What's going on here? Well, again, consider what they witnessed in Jesus's fourth sign or miracle. The Passover is at hand. There's a guy who's just fed us with bread and there's leftovers. Does that sound familiar in Israel's history? Right? This is Exodus 16, reminiscent of it. Israel in the wilderness of sin. Moses and Aaron speaking to them about what God did for them in the Passover, how he freed them from slavery to the Egyptians and brought them out, and how the Lord is now allowing them to see his glory again in a concrete way. He's going to give them meat to eat in the evening. And in the morning, they can have their fill of bread, man, right? So this is what Israel does as they reach the, the Sinai and eventually the promised land. God sustains their life with this bread from heaven, this manna. And so they gather it and some gather a little more, some gather a little less. But the, of those who gather and what they gather, it is said in Exodus 16, that whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered a little 
had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. All of this is to say that to the crowd, this Jesus sounds a lot like, looks a lot like, is experienced a lot like, and thus reminds them of Moses, the greatest prophet. Hence the crowd exclaims, this is indeed a prophet who has come into the world. And they even want to make him their king, right? And little did they know that during the night, in the evening, it wasn't just the disciples who went across to the other side, as we'll see today, but it was also Jesus who had went to his disciples and the other side, not in the boat, but walking on water. So today, we find ourselves now on the other side of the sea with the context of the feeding of the 5,000, Exodus 16, and the Passover freshly in our mind and the minds of the crowds. So yesterday's text was primarily the action, what happened, and now in the aftermath of that, and a little bit more action in terms of the searching that we get to talk about today, in the aftermath of that, we're going to hear Jesus teach extensively on what these things mean, what they should take from all that they've seen and learn about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We get the opening part of that discourse of Jesus today in our text. Again, we are looking at John chapter 6, verses 22 to 33. We read, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That is our text for today. That is John 6, verses 22 to 33. So, Pastor Philippeck, our, our text starts right on the heels of what we read yesterday. This is the next day, and the crowd starts looking around, and they start maybe counting on their fingers. There was one boat. We didn't see Jesus get in it. What's going on here? Take us into their their thoughts and ruminations, and then their actions based on what we see in verses 22 to 20, about 24. Absolutely. So as you said, you can look and you can see with your own eyes. There's only you know one boat here, gone, and Jesus is not around. And the text emphasizes this word, I didn't saw. But when it uses the word saw, it's not only, I don't think, a use of their eyes. Because in 23, they can literally, yes, see in their own eyes in the light of day that 
you know, the, the boat is, is gone. But then in verse 23, we have this governing aspect of the text that says, other boats from Tiberius came. And so this aspect of saw is also an aspect of not just see with the eyes, but hear this aspect of, of John of hearing uh, and seeing together. John develops seeing and hearing, hearing and seeing, and, bl- and to the end of the gospel, you believe because you have seen me, blessed is the one who is not seen and yet believes. So this, this hearing aspect, this seeing aspect, and they're getting a report as well from those who are coming in to the place near them that, that Jesus is gone, right? They can see it. They can hear it. Something is amiss. He's not here. And only one small boat is, is missing. So the primary emphasis on this is text is kind of of that, that hearing, seeing aspect. And Jesus has, has left them. And notice the emphasis is that the boats are drawing near. The emphasis still is on the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the focus of John 6, even here on the crowds in the morning, is on this aspect of bread, this fourth sign or miracle of Jesus. And that's what causes them to go looking, right? They go looking for, searching for, seeking Jesus, chasing after him because of the bread that fourth sign they had received. Well, they, they find him eventually, of course, when they go across the sea, they find him when they go to Capernaum. Now, where do they find him in Capernaum? Well, for our reading and purposes today, the text does not really tell us. But if you read the full length of John 6 here, you'll notice verse 59 says, at the end of the, the whole teaching aspect of this, Jesus' words, it says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught and sat at Capernaum. So in summary, where do they find Jesus? Well, they find Jesus in the synagogue teaching. And that's important because as you said, leading into this today, Pastor Apple, it means that what follows, all of the bread of life discourse here that you're going to look at, um, not today, a little bit today, but in this next time of study. All of the Bread of Life discourse is actually sort of a a homily, a brief explanation, commentary, or or sermon on a particular scripture reading that Jesus is going to give, or is giving now, rather, in the Capernaum synagogue. And so Jesus is, what he's going to do, is going to take the events of Exodus 16. The crowds quotes that they throw them in from Psalm 78, from Psalm 105, and from Nehemiah 9 and the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, and he's going to weave them together. He's going to interpret Scripture plainly for them because they don't see it plainly. He's going to show the crowds that all of these things, including the event of the feeding of the 5,000, really is about him, who he is, and what he will do for the life of the world. That is, what God did for a few people in the Old Testament. In the event of Exodus, God is now doing in the flesh of Jesus for all people. This has already been told to us back in John 5, that unbelieving crowd who sees him only as a a, a rabbi, right? A a teacher or or a prophet, prophetes, and not the word made flesh. Jesus has already said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So now Jesus is going to teach them 
preach to them the scriptures that they may believe that he is not simply a prophet like Moses or a rabbi, a teacher, but the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and that by believing in him, they may actually have life in his name. I really appreciate that you took us forward into the chapter to see that this is happening at the synagogue in Capernaum and the connection that you made to chapter five. I think that's fantastic. We talked about this in the previous text that Jesus has told the crowds already in chapter five that if you believed Moses, you would believe my words. And so now to see him, you know, quite literally go to the synagogue and look at the words of Moses as the way to rightly understand what has just happened, I think is a fantastic thing. And it really helps us to see what Jesus is is doing. And then just to kind of picture this in my own mind, you know, I thinking that this is in the synagogue, you kind of wonder where where exactly was Jesus in his time of teaching at the synagogue when verse 25 comes, where they find him and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? You know, were they kind of waiting for a break in his sermon at the synagogue or was this the start of the service? I don't know. And that's probably not important, but at least it's just kind of me trying to, to picture this in my mind. Jesus is here teaching the people in the synagogue and he's going to show them from Moses what this actually means, because we know that Moses was actually writing about Jesus. What a what a fantastic thing to see. The other thing that, that really stood out to me that you said, Pastor Philippic, that I really think is helpful is that thought about what are these people seeing and the, the way that John often talks about seeing and believing that they're not the same thing. And of course, the importance of hearing. I, I hadn't picked up on it in those first couple of verses. But I did notice in verse 26, when Jesus begins to answer them, when they ask him, you know, when did you get here? He, he tells them, you are not looking for me because you saw signs. And on the one hand, you know, as I was thinking about this, well, they did technically see what Jesus had done. They, they saw what he did with their eyes in terms of, you know, he fed the 5,000 with just the, the few loaves and few fish. And they're probably getting an idea of what he did in terms of the boat, maybe, but they haven't really seen it because they haven't believed it yet. And so I think that theme of, of seeing and believing, I think, I, I really think you're right to, to pick that out. Take us into what Jesus begins to answer them in verses 26 and following then, and, and respond to any of that as you see fit. No, absolutely. It was a nice summary that you per, provided there of the, of the key points that we've, we've talked about so far. They, they ask him that question, and that's where he left off. Rabbi, where did, when did you come here? But notice Jesus doesn't answer it. He's not, he doesn't <laughs> answer that Jesus. question at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's more interested in, in what they don't truly see, i.e. believe that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. I mean, John's kind of that anointed one, and again, it gets, that's, gets uh, morphed into Hebrew, the, the Messiah or the Christus, the Christ. But that, that aspect of, of they don't see him as the anointed one um, from the Father. So he's, that's what this whole discourse is really about, to help uh, fit those puzzle pieces together. So he, he says, you know, you, you're seeking me. You're, and this is, again, this, this verb has already come up in verse 24, this seeking Jesus, chasing after him. You know, why are you chasing after this Jesus? What are you looking for? And this goes nicely into the, the next part about food that laboring, right? Seeking, chasing after the things that, that, um, that 
perish versus the things that endure to eternal life. So they want more bread. They want the, the things of this world. That's how they see Jesus a, as someone who will satisfy, like Moses before them, th their stomachs, the things of this world. They're chasing after the stuff. But Jesus says, you know, to, to what end does that actually lead? And what was that truly about? So he's going to co comment about what that was really about, that, that that was kind of a sign from God, a shadow uh, in the Old Testament, what God did for a few people there, God's now doing for all people in the flesh of Jesus, the true bread from heaven. We'll, we'll expound on that as we go. He's going to come back to that, but just, just by way of what are you chasing after? What are you focusing on? Uh, what, are you, what are you looking to receive here? And that's just the stuff that, that fills, right? And so our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. That's what Jesus is going to focus on later on when it comes to 49, that, that the things of this world, the things that you're chasing after and looking me to make a king of and, and, and whatnot, the material aspects, the gifts that you are given actually are, are nothing more right now for you than that which will lead to your death because you do not believe but I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, keep going. Sorry, no, no, no. I, you keep going. Right. I wasn't trying to interrupt you. No, I was just going to contrast that when uh, with his with his word. Then, so chasing and focusing on and receiving that bread only leads to death. But there is another type of food, and he's going to go on later on to talk about that this food is actually another type of bread. And when he talks about type of bread, he's going to be the actual bread, the substance itself. You know what Moses gave you back there really just pointed to the here and now. It, it was a shadow of, of this moment of reality that is to come that the Father has given you. But, but this whole aspect of, of bread, this bread, the, the other kind of food, this bread that, that the Father is giving you here and now, that bread leads to life. That's the bread you should work for, labor for, chase after, focus on, receive, right? That's the bread that, that leads to life and gives life. And any other food or bread it, it leads to death, but this food leads and endures to eternal life. And as we shall see in the chapter, that's none other than Jesus Christ, the crucified, the anointed one, the Paschal Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So you get this two kinds of bread. They're focusing on just the stuff that leads to death, even though that's gifts of God and missing the, the true gift of God, the true bread that they shall partake of that would give them life. So there's that contrast between the food that they're laboring for already, the food that perishes, Jesus says. On the other hand, there's the food that endures to eternal life. That's one of the contrasts. I think there's a, a contrast, too, in the thought of, of the laboring versus the, the giving that's there in verse 27. You know, Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And you kind of, I think, hinted at this at least a little bit, Pastor Philippeck, that the to labor for the food that endures to eternal life is ultimately just to, to receive it from the Son of Man who's going to give it to you, which Jesus is going to make plain when he talks about, you know, believing in the one whom the Father has sent. That I think that's another contrast going on here in John 6 is not only between the two types of food, but also between the, the laboring for it on the, and then on the other hand, to just being given to receive it from the Son of Man. That's absolutely correct. I tried to do the best I could to subsume all of that by multiple stackings up of things of chasing after. Like, what are you seeking? Because that seeking verb comes through a lot. Uh, what are you focusing yeah. on? What are you receiving? And Jesus is rolling all of this into one. That, that to labor after means to focus on 
to to seek after, i.e., you can't do anything else but receive that which the Father gives you. So it is a very in the Greek, it's it's actually a very passive thing that throws flows through all this. It's not an act of like I've got to work, I've got to do this, but it's really just in conjunction with the seeking of the crowd. Like you're missing what the Father's giving you, man. Open your eyes, listen to the words that the Son of Man is speaking to you here. Now I use that that son of man phrase very pointedly for the the things coming up and receive the bread that God gives to you, i.e. believe in me. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the title son of man, which Jesus uses explicitly in verse 27. He is the one, the son of man is the one who will give this bread that endures to eternal life. So talk about this title that Jesus uses for himself, the son of man. Yeah. So the son of man is an interesting thing. It is the second title in the gospel of John that prevails. The, the first one is the son of God, um, but the second one is the son of man. And that has 12 specific occurrences. You can kind of uh, combine some of those occurrences, but I'm just going to point out 12 specific occurrences and only focus on the ones that we've encountered so far and are encountering today. Leave the rest for our, our, our following guests, the, the, the you know, preceding guests from this. So the occurrences are John 1, 51, John 3, 13, John 3, 14, John 5, 27, John 6, 27, John 6, 53, John 6, 62. Notice three of them are already in the Bread of Life discourse. John 8, 28, John 9, 35, John 12, 23, and John uh, 12, 31, and uh, 34 in that upper room discussion on the night when Jesus was betrayed. So there's a lot for the, for the guests to come after me to do, but let me, let me just kind of highlight what has occurred now with the Son of Man title and what we might actually see in Jesus's usage of this. So the first time it occurs is in John 1, 51, Jesus talking to Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So that as Jesus takes this Old Testament event of Jacob at Bethel and fills it with, you wanna know what that event is about? It's the same thing he's doing in John 6. That event is actually about me. I am that son of man in, in which occurs in that, in the Exodus or in the Genesis narrative and in this John. So he links the two together. Now I'm going to save my commentary, kind of the summary of that for the end of this. Then you get the John 3, 13 through 14 occurrence, the talking to Nicodemus. Now there's two times, again, you could combine this as one and I do for this purpose. And that d discussion about baptism ends this way. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then John five. So the son of man is tied so far with heaven being opened and, and that uh, ascending and descending on the son of man, the angels, the uh, being encircled and enthroned around angels and also then being high and lifted up and having descended from heaven. Now, John 5, for as the father has life in himself, so he granted the son also to have life in himself. Notice the connection between the father and the son. That title son of man is also tied to, to the father very intimately in a very particular way. He goes on to say then in, in uh, verse 27, and has given him authority to execute 
judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Notice all who are in the tombs, all the dead and come out. And those who have done good, i.e. believe to a resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, i.e. those who do not believe to a resurrection of judgment. So in a, when we look at the trajectory of how the, the verses of Son of Man have shaped us and what they've told us so far in John about the Son of Man, I would just simply say it like this. The Son of Man is the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only Son of the Father who came down from heaven to be high and lifted up upon the cross in order to give life to the world. That's what we know with the Son of Man so far. Okay, and so that's going to be fleshed out all the more in John 6, starting with this verse, just briefly on the title, the Son of Man, which, as you said, is a very common one that Jesus uses for himself. The way that you were describing it and have summarized it so far, we've got about a minute on this side of the break, but I just want to kind of clarify this. It sounds like this is more than what, say, the hymn, the beautiful, that beautiful Savior does with it, that Jesus is Son of God and Son of Man. To say that he's the Son of Man is scripturally speaking, is more than just saying he's a human being, but it goes with all this authority that he has as the Son of Man. Absolutely. It's not only a reference. I'm going to say only. It is a reference to his humanity, but also to his divinity. So like the beautiful Savior hymn, Son of God, Son of Man, that's the kind of two natures of Christ aspect there. And there's some of that, yes, in John, but this has to do with the mission of Jesus, that God sent his Son into the world to be high and lifted up. It comes with the authority and the sending, the mission of the Father. That's what the Son of Man has to deal with. Mm, all right. So we're going to see how John will continue to reveal Jesus as the Son of Man in his gospel and in this text, but we're going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about John chapter 6 with Pastor Adam Filipek. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 31st. We're studying John chapter 6, verses 22 to 33 with Pastor Adam Philippek. He serves at Emmanuel and Holy Cross Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, prior to the break, you were telling us about the title Jesus uses for himself, the Son of Man, where we've seen it already in the Gospel of John, and we know it's going to come up later as well. Here, what Jesus says about himself being the Son of Man 
The Son of Man is the one who gives the food that endures to eternal life. We've talked a little bit about that already. And then Jesus adds that on him, on the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. Most of what we've been talking about so far deals with the idea of food and eating and being sustained. But here's this thought of of being sealed. What's the image here? What does it mean that God the Father has set his seal on the Son of Man? All right. This is a direct connection to what the crowd does not believe. They do not believe. They do not see him as the anointed one. And that stands in contrast to how we have seen him throughout the Gospel of John. This is a direct reference. The seal is a direct reference to that of John chapter 1, 29 through 34, baptism. Jesus' baptism. In the waters of the Jordan, Jesus has already been identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, That Exodus language, that Paschal Lamb of sacrifice, the temple language, the sacrificial language there, the Lamb of God has already entered this. Since you know, you have the Genesis and Exodus really driving a lot of John's interpretation and proclamation of the gospel and why you see in chapter 7 the shifts to Jerusalem and everything else remaining then in Jerusalem as the pinnacle aspect of this in, uh, in John. Really remaining, 7 to the end there, uh, where we have Jesus being high and lifted up upon the cross, exalted. So. He's known as the one who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God, and the one on whom the Spirit has descended and remains. Key thing here, descending and remaining is the seal. It is the anointing. And the one who is anointed in the Old Testament, the one on whom the Spirit remains that it was prophesied, that one is going to baptize with the same Spirit, which is what John himself then says. So Jesus is the anointed one, anointed with the spirit, that sort of signet ring impression, the icon of God's grace there, the word made flesh, the 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 logos, the speech of God from the beginning. Now you see there in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, who himself was anointed, who has the spirit, who We'll do all these things in the power of the Spirit, and then on the cross give that Spirit over to the Father. He breathed his last, and he gave up the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, only then to rise in the Spirit and bestow that same Spirit upon the disciples, through which he breathes upon, in John 20, the office of the Holy Ministry, receive the Holy Spirit, if he forgives the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. And in these concrete ways, in the office, in the person work of Jesus, in the ministry, in the baptism which he undergoes, and the baptism which he gives of water and spirit, all of those who follow Christ will in fact become sons of God through faith in Christ Having been baptized into Christ, they will have been clothed with Christ, Galatians 3. And and what does that mean? Well, to be clothed with Christ, you you have to see in this. You know, we can march through all of the all of this stuff from Genesis, the clothing, all the way to Revelation. But I think the 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 best way to understand seal, or the shortest way, the quickest way, and, and fullest way here for our time, is that being clothed with Christ in Galatians 3 actually is in connection with Revelation 7 the text we get on All Saints Day, 
where the, the number of those sealed coming out of the great tribulation, 144,000, every nation, every tribe, who are these? Well, these are the ones who have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are clothed with Christ. They are the baptized. They are now co-heirs, adopted sons of the father who now by virtue of being baptized and joined to Jesus are co-heirs of eternal life with Christ. Yeah, Romans 8 speaks of this. Hmm. So the, the fact that Jesus is this one on whom the Father has set his seal, the Son of Man on whom the Father has set his seal, this ends up being very, very good news for you and for me as, as you've kind of traced that through the, the scriptures. And I'm just trying to think of some of the things that I know we're going to encounter later in John's gospel in the upper room discourse that Jesus gives in chapters what, 13 through 17 or so, I mean, he, he talks about how he's going to send this other helper, the spirit of truth, who's going to remain with you. And I mean, the connection that Jesus has to his father, and then for those who are in Jesus, what that means for them, all of this is to say, when Jesus says, God the father has set his seal on the son of man, that ends up being really good news for you and for me and all who are in Christ. It has huge implications and great comfort for us because it means that that we are sealed to this, this one who has life and gives life uh, in himself. Absolutely. And you might succinctly, um, in, that, in this John 14 and John 16 text that you're referring to, see this. This, when, this, when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth, right? So you have this setup of the spirit of truth. He's of truth and he guides you into truth. But in John 14, you have Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. So the spirit's job is essentially to give you Jesus. And in uh, maybe a succinct way of putting this and understanding this in a very John sense of, of, uh, Trinity and Christology and all that is the father sent the son in the, the power of the Holy Spirit that by the spirit through the son, you might be reconciled to the father. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of saying it. Very, very succinct. I appreciate that, Pastor Philippek. So Jesus identifies himself as the son of man who gives the food that endures to eternal life as the son of man. God, the father has set his seal on Jesus the people listening then respond. So this is, you know, you mentioned this is happening in a synagogue. He's teaching there. There's going to be back and forth. I've, I've referred to this as a, a or a sermon. You've been calling it a discourse, but there is some back and forth here. And we see that in verse 28, the crowds answer Jesus. Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It seems that they latch onto that thought of laboring and, and this idea of laboring for food. They say, well, what are these works that we should be doing? Jesus tell, says the work is to believe, which I think is just a, a beautiful answer. Take us into that back and forth in verses 28 and 29. Absolutely. So given the context and how we now have set this up and understand this in light of the earlier feeding of the 5,000 and the Exodus 16 narrative and the connection to Moses, Moses gave very specific things to do, i.e., he received the 10 words, the 10 commandments from God and gave them to the people that they might do them. So it's not for nothing that they might say, then, then what are the works, plural? But Jesus doesn't come back with the works, plural. He comes back with the works, singular. 
the very thing that they fail to see, do, that is, believe, which is actually not of them. But uh, actually, Jesus will talk about later on, and he's already talked about it, that no one can, can come to the Father except through the Son, and only these things are revealed by the Spirit. So they are largely blind right now, even already in this discourse. They, they see this as something they're doing, but, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 all of the seeking, all of the chasing after, it's just receiving what the Father has given. It's just cling to and trusting the word made flesh. The, the uh, word of God, i.e. me, Jesus Christ, all of that I am saying, all that I am doing, I am the son from the father, full of grace and truth. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic answer. And just the, you know, what do we need to do to be doing the works? And then Jesus says the work is to believe, which as it is, is, is not actually a work. It's simply to receive the one who's already done the work for you, which is the one the Father has sent. That's Jesus. And just this, that brief interchange there reminds me of, of Isaiah chapter 55, at least in the, the way that it kind of makes you scratch your head for a second. Isaiah 55 starts like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You have that that just kind of, it's a strange way of, of speaking, but it fits perfectly. You're supposed to buy, but you don't have any money, and you're buying without even money and be, things that don't have a price. It just reminds me of the way that Jesus is speaking here. You know, what's the work of God? Well, it, it's to believe but that's not a work. It's something that is given to you because someone else has done the work for you. That same, you know, the way Isaiah speaks there in chapter 55, I, I see in the background here of the way Jesus speaks in John 6. Absolutely. And this is a gift of God by the Spirit, as we see, like we've talked about in John 14 and 16, even before then, John 3, all of these things, unless you are born by water and spirit, that is onothin from above. Well, the same from above, the same onothen, the same baptismal language is what Jesus is talking about with the true bread, bread from above, bread from heaven, bread of God. So this whole aspect is an aspect of not doing, but receiving. And if you're focused on doing, then again, that the food, the work that you are doing only leads to death. But when you receive this true bread from heaven, when you believe in him, then even your own works that were once filthy rags are now redeemed and good works before God in this way. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That work of righteousness of Christ even permeates our own works and turns those filthy rags into the riches, the beauty, the perfection of God, God at work in us. But it's God doing the work in and through us, not we ourselves laboring. Mm. So you, you said in verse 28, you know, when they ask about the works of God that they should be doing, they're, they're, they got in their minds this the 10 words, the 10 commandments, you know, connecting this to Moses and what happened. It, it seems like something similar is happening in verse 30 when they respond to what Jesus says about believing in him whom he has sent. They start asking about a sign for Jesus. Where do you where do you see that question coming from in verse 30 that they respond to Jesus? Absolutely. So it flows nicely from that. They're not 
ignorant of Exodus 16, Moses, uh, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Nehemiah 9 that they're quoting to him. It's just that they refuse to see Jesus as anything other than a new Moses, a Moses who prepares them here and now for the, the reign and work of the Messiah, right? They don't see him, though, as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so then that answer of 29, this is the work of God that you may believe in whom he has sent. See, this is just it. The whole time the father has sent the son. This is John 3. This is John 1. All these things that we have encountered. So that leads them to say, all right, so just plainly, what then, what sign do you do that we may believe? And you think, well, wait a minute. I already did a sign. You are looking for the works of Moses. Right, that's who you know, Moses. But I've already told you that it's Moses, and all of this that I preach to you here and now. That I am the fulfillment of Moses. That these scriptures are all about me. That Moses, Abraham, Jacob, you know, Abraham rejoiced because he saw this day, my day. All of these different things that he already said are coming to a head here, and and. All that they can do is, is ask for another sign, right? Jews demand signs because, you know, you gave us one and that sign is, is reminiscent of Moses. It's like Moses, but we need something more now. We need something greater to show us that, that you're more than this Moses and all that. And he says, really? Okay. Then what sign do you give that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they point to what? They point to Moses. See, they point to the bread. You did the same stuff Moses did. Our father did the bread from heaven, right? We've been fed and all that sort of stuff. So you got this feeding of the 5,000 lurking in the background, which they're comparing to Moses. And notice their emphasis. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And that quote there, that Psalm 78, that Psalm 105 and Nehemiah 9, all of those quote, it's, it's more of a focus in Psalm 78 here, verse 24. But, all of those psalms that I, I mentioned in Nehemiah as well focuses on that, the bread raining down from heaven, the bread of God. You know, they say our, our fathers ate this, right? This, this whole bread, this is something that our fathers before us did. Now, in 32, Jesus has to correct them because they're focused so much on Moses and Moses doing all this and Moses being great and all this. They do recognize that God gave the bread through Moses, but, you know, it's, it's really you know, the focus here is on Moses and Jesus has to correct them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. So that's the first correction. No, 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 no. It wasn't Moses. Let's really get this sign right. It's not about Moses. And notice how Jesus is kind of downplaying Moses, not as the greatest thing ever, but just as the one whom the father used as his servant, his mouthpiece, right? That's really all Moses was, but it's all about the father. And then he gives you this line and you get a switch in tense here. And, and we can pause and, and talk about this. But it, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. And here comes the tense change. Mm. The father gives you bread, true bread from heaven. And that's where the, 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 the key has that, that Jesus is, is inviting them to see what happened in the Exodus as, as a pointing forward to a sign, a type, a shadow, like what God did for a few people in this Exodus, this, this leading people out of slavery, 
saving them by the blood of the lamb and feeding them on their journey with uh, to the promised land where they will enter into the presence of God with this bread come down from heaven. Oh, God is doing something now even greater. He's what you saw for a few people. God is doing for all people. The true bread, the reality from heaven came. And Jesus will comment on it. The fathers ate that bread, that sign, and they died, right? But if you eat this bread, the true bread from heaven, you will not die. You will live. And we can save 33, uh, kind of just pause here and save 33 from what that bread is. But but it's really just interpreting that event and and kind of echoing John 5. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it's they that testify to me. That that event is about me. Well, there you see the the synagogue context coming through again, too, because they're they're quoting the Old Testament to Jesus saying, hey, this is how we're understanding this verse. And he says, no, you've got it all wrong. Moses isn't the one who gave you this bread from heaven. It was my father. And, and as you said, he changes the tense. My father gives you this true bread from heaven. So it's a, a, something that's happening right now, and it's happening in Jesus Go ahead then and take us into that last verse, verse 33, about how Jesus starts to identify this bread that's being given by the Father right now. Yeah, so what is then this true bread? Well, this is the cliffhanger for today, and this <laughs> leads us into the bread of life discourse, uh, the, the full exposition of Scripture by Jesus on what this bread is here and now, that the Father is truly given the reality that stands before them. It's not just manna, the frost-like stuff. And it's not just the stuff that Jesus gave them that filled their belly uh, during that Passover as they were hungry and coming to him. And he started this whole conversation about bread with Philip and Andrew and the, the five loaves and the two fish. No, there's something more that both of those things are actually about and what they are about. The substance of these things, to quote Colossians, the body, the soma of this is Christ. And he identifies himself then as that bread in verse 33. He says, for the bread of God. Now notice, not bread of heaven. You want to know what the bread of God is. So we go from bread of heaven to bread of God. God's bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And now we see in this the whole previous context uh, and, and the beginning succinct statement of what Jesus means precisely when he said it was the son of man who will give you that bread that endures, that food that endures to eternal life, right? So, so that whole aspect is God has sent the true bread from heaven. And what is this true bread? Well, that's the son of man who has come down into this world, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob himself, who has the Lord of heaven and earth who has come down from heaven to be high and lifted up upon the cross in order to give life to the world. And we'll see that what the bread actually is, is, is even more than just himself, but his own flesh there upon the cross. So that, that connection of his mission as the son of man is being brought to the forefront with identifying himself as the bread of God from right the bread of god that that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world that's just it this is the son of man the lord of heaven and earth the true bread of god the god of abraham isaac and jacob the only son of the father who came from heaven to be high and lifted up in order to give life to the world. 
You said that this we have a bit of a cliffhanger here because we don't get the full bread of life discourse today. It's we're we're taking our time going through John chapter six because there is so much in these words. But even with the cliffhanger and, and leaving it at the end of verse thirty three today, I think you know as, as you've already been pointing out to us, Pastor Philippek, you can see where Jesus is headed here. As I was looking through this text, even the way that the crowds ask Jesus that question in verse thirty, where they ask for a sign. It was back in John chapter two, where they asked Jesus for a sign as to you know why he thought he could be the one to kick people out of the temple and cleanse it. What was the sign? And there he pointed to his own death and resurrection. He said, you know, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, talking about his death and resurrection. And the same thing is going on here when he's asked again for a sign he's already pointing to his his own death and resurrection, and that's going to be made plain. But even within just what he says in verses 32 and 33, I think it's there in that language of the Father, you know, giving, thinking back to John 3, and, you know, perhaps the most famous verse in the entire gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the connection to Moses lifting up the serpent, that's how the Father's going to give his son seems like all that same thing is is in play here and um, when so if you're going to ask Jesus for a sign he's pretty consistent in pointing to his death and resurrection i think that's what's happening here absolutely you see in this already with the son of man language with what he's already talked about uh in in 32 and 33 you see that emphasis on his mission being high and lifted up the exaltation of Jesus uh, on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the sake of, for the life of the world. And that's the reality. That's the actual bread. That is the, that is the, that which gives life to the world. That is this Jesus who is the resurrection and the life, the bread of heaven. All the IMs of John uh, come together in this, but they all come together in the cross, in the empty tomb, all of those things, specifically for John on the cross, that exaltation and the giving of his flesh and life for for the life and and sake of the world. And I think that in the bread of life discourse, you're going to have a dual focus going forward. So the first part of this bread of life discourse, we've already got here in summary, and so do we have in the second. The first aspect is, who is the giver of bread? Well, we already saw that, right? It's not Moses who gives this bread, but God who gives this bread, the bread of God. And then you're going to have in the second half of the discourse, what that bread is that that he gives and that's going to focus again on the flesh that he gives his own flesh on the cross for the world for their sins for our sins for our life and salvation and only that only in his giving of his own body on the cross are sins taken away and is the world redeemed are we reconciled to the father and we have life and we have it abundantly in, in his name. Pastor Philippeck, we have about three minutes here left on the morning, just reflecting on this section of John 6, thinking about Jesus saying, you know, don't labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which you will be given. How do we make use of these words as Christians for us? What is the comfort and good news that we have from this part of John chapter 6? This good news really helps us to lay our heads on the pillow at night and sleep soundly, knowing that just as the farmer, to kind of 
it just use the mark analogy here. Just as the farmer uh, doesn't know how things grow, uh, it's, you know, he scatters a seed, but he sleeps, he rises, he knows not how it grows. It's God who gives the growth. So it is this one, this Jesus who has come down from heaven, who gives his life unto death for the forgiveness of sins and the life of the entire world. That Jesus, believing in him, is the work of God that, re- that has reconciled us by the Spirit through the Son to the Father, so that the bread from heaven is still being given out even in our day. For God does not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that by it the world might be saved. And upon his resurrection, as the Father has sent me, so now even I send you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. To feast upon the bread is, first and foremost, as a Christian, in order to have life, is to receive from God himself the true bread of heaven. And God gives this true bread in simple words, just like he did. The, the, the word of God gives himself as words. In our ears, yes, I forgive you all your sins. And he gives his own flesh. Take and eat, take and drink. This is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you. That feasting upon the bread of life, we might have the eternal life in his name. And that even shapes and colors how we live our life. For our filthy rags become the very righteousness of God. They are redeemed and God continues to work through and in us to his glory. But those works only come by receiving, by receiving the bread of life. So as a Christian, one of our delights is not, not neglecting meeting together as some is in the habit are doing, but coming each and every week to the divine service to receive this true bread of heaven, the son of man, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only son of the father come down from heaven to be high and lifted up upon the cross, who then in the divine service gives us his own forgiveness, his own life in words, in water, in bread, and wine, and that receiving him, we may have life in his name. Pastor Adam Philippek serves at Emmanuel and Holy Cross Lutheran Churches in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today to study John chapter 6, verses 22 to 33. Pastor Philippek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.